Well, first off, thank you, Mike, for letting me um, stand up here to enjoy the word, certainly with the whole class, and um, just to tell of Christ and the riches of Christ's uh, grace. Um, he said, you know, make sure you get the plane up around you know, as soon as possible, and then try to land it around a quarter after. Well, I can tell you guys, I don't have a pilot's license, so we might slam into this tarmac, but we'll hit it full <laughs> speed. I can promise you that. <laughs> So as the handout gets passed around, please turn to Ezekiel chapter 16 in your Bibles. And as you turn there, I'll start with a few questions, questions that I think are rhetorical. Have you ever been faced with a situation in which you cannot see how it's going to work out for anything that could be called good? Have you ever struggled with the thought that God has abandoned you in a situation, perhaps? Left you wondering why the long waits, why the trials, and if you're being honest, if certainly I'm being honest, you don't want those circumstances. Have you ever felt like you've gone past the point of no return in your sin with God? Do you think you have possibly out God's salvation? Ezekiel 16, I think, shows us all of these things. God's overarching purposes behind judgment, consequence, discipline. But God also shows his purposes for these things leading to preservation, mercy, forgiveness, and love. What he shows us is his grace. Grace that looks upon a helpless and hopeless sinner and says to them, live. Grace that covers and washes, cares and creates new life in the very dead hearts of sinful man. Grace that makes us know that we cannot possibly be our own, but belong to our faithful Savior and Lord, Christ Jesus. That no matter what comes in all of life and death, and even especially death, that we know that he rules and he reigns. We see this, all of this in this tremendous chapter, and uh, Landon Downden said it like this, quote, God will not tolerate the sin of his people, but it is also true that he will not abandon them. The gospel reminds us why. God will not leave us because he left his son. God will not abandon us because he abandoned his son. God will not forsake us because he forsook his son. He will not condemn us because he condemned his son. All of this is packaged here in Ezekiel 16. So it's a long chapter. I believe it's the longest chapter in the book. Probably not the task for 30 minutes, but we're going to try. So I want to do a very high-level overview, though. And to do that, to work your way through a long chapter, there's a kind of a five-word roadmap that you can use that's there on your handout. And that five-word roadmap is simply abhorred, preserved, married, judged, and atoned. Abhorred, preserved, married, judged, and atoned. So look at verse 1 in chapter 16 of Ezekiel. And we'll talk about the fact that sin has fallen on all of mankind. Verse 1, again, the the word of the Lord came to me saying, so I want to set the stage here. We're obviously jumping into a book that we're not normally in. Israel had been taken by the Babylonians 
into captivity. This occurred some 600 years before Christ, 597 B.C. So thousands of Israelites were forced into exile, Ezekiel being one of them. And he was called to be a prophet of God sometime around 593 B.C., five years after the exile or so. And we read that from the word that Ezekiel was beat up over this. And what I mean by that is that if it weren't for the exile, he was supposed to be a priest by this time. Due to his age, around 30 years, he was supposed to be in service, but then the exile occurred, and now he is questioning everything. But then he is absolutely, for sure, used by God. And he does, in fact, go to work for God, as he calls him to be a prophet. So in chapter 2 of Ezekiel, or Ezekiel, we see that. If you want to turn there, we can go together. Chapter 2, verse 3. And he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to the nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Back to 16. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. So this task that was set before Ezekiel was going to be a tough one because in verse 7 of chapter 2, God tells us Israel, or at least most of Israel, was not going to listen. They had a hard, impenitent, stubborn heart. But Ezekiel calls out to Jerusalem, and by extension, the whole of Israel for their covenant-breaking, their abominations. And the abominations here are all that which disgusts God. That's what the word actually means. And the thing that God disgusts, the thing that he cannot stand in the presence of, is sin. It is against his nature, against his holiness. For you are not of God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you, says the Psalms. Verse 3, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Remember that Abraham migrated from the land of Canaan. So this would have been received as a significant gut punch, a reminder to Israel of God's even grace to them already. It was Israel's parents. If this was Israel's parents from the land of which they migrated from, then she is no better in the same moral character that she was plucked from. Yet God chooses Abraham and makes a promise to him. From Joshua, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan, and made of offspring many. God plucks them, as I said, from this moral decay. So there is this universal sin that is seen on all mankind, and it is grace that God even selects them to start with. Go to verse 4. And as, you, as for your birth, on the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swallowing cloths, No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. God is saying very plainly, they were utterly hopeless. 
even abhorred, hated. And what picture is used here? What quickly and horrendously can strike this image into the heart? And it is a baby that's been left to die. Verse 4 there. Know the audience here. Now they are surrounded by traditions of the Eastern pagans. I'm sure that the memory of the Egyptian slaughter of all the sons being cast into Nile comes up here. Even the, the Spartans in this area, in this, in this time, these Eastern traditions, they left their weaker to die. A daughter was born that wasn't wanted. A weaker baby was born that wasn't wanted. They left them to die. This picture is used to tell of this hopelessness. Born to wretched, unloving parents, these pagan roots, they were left to die in the wilderness. Israel was unwanted, they were uncared for, they were unloved. And so, this is not just Israel, folks. This is all of mankind's nature. We are all utterly hopeless, like that of an infant that's been thrown out to the field and left to die. Ephesians 2.1 reminds us of this. Paul saying this very thing. Remember you and your trespasses against the Lord. Remember this was you as well. Spurgeon here. Quote, It is not a question whether man will be lost or not as to whether man shall enter the flames of hell or not. It is no query. Man must perish unless God saves. Every one of us must be lost to all eternity unless the strong arm of the divine interferes. There is no one else to nurture this helpless infant. This infant cannot rescue itself. Lost, 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 says Spurgeon. But we get to verse 6, and we already hit this, one of these just marvelous transitions in this chapter. After painting this picture, God preserves here. His sovereign compassion on a helpless infant is set forth. Verse 6, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field and grew up. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Verses 6 and 7 here likely refer to Israel's growing up and multiplying throughout the time of staying in Egypt. God speaks of infusing the very life into the dead, just as his, his speech does. So too does the life of faith when God calls out to us in our deadness. And why does he do this? Why would he call out to the dead like this? And I think uh, Paul captures this in Romans, which I'm sure will be there soon. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor to the one who runs, but on God who has mercy, Romans 9. See how dependent upon God we are in our lowly state, this helpless state that we are in. And he has a sovereign purpose for these things, to bring about what we will soon see here in 16. So number three, then, would be married, this intense devotion. Look to verse 8. When I passed by you again, I saw you. Behold, you were at the age for love. 
and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you with also with an embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose, earrings in your ears, a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. There is no picture here of him, God, holding out anything. This isn't the the 2.4 carat. This is certainly the 24 carat gold ring that was placed upon her. It's God's provision and grace upon her. He entered into a covenant with Israel as she matured, likely the giving of the law. But God continues to lavish her with gifts and adornments, so much so that she became the envy of all those around her, all the nations. From Joshua to Solomon's time, all because of his splendor there in verse 14. That is grace. Notice, however, these are external adornments. Everything that God does here is at the external. And that's important because we hit a transition point here. And despite all of that grace, having been taken from a hopeless condition, made to be alive, provided nourishment, splendor, the envy of all nations. Now Ezekiel carries this marriage metaphor to the reality of a still dead heart. There is still a problem here. And from verses 15 through 59, we read of how terribly sinful and depraved Israel was toward God. So much so that she was called a harlot, a prostitute. It's very, very strong and awful language that's used here. And for the sake of time, because this, like I said, is a very long chapter, I just want to hit some of the highlights of this horrendous behavior. Israel gave herself to the religious practices of the Canaanites and those around her, verses 15 through 19. They even sacrificed their own children and offered them to idols through burning. Verses 20 through 22. I mean, that is spiritual amnesia in a way. Utter hypocrisy. Knowing that they were portrayed as a hopeless infant that was left to die. And now they sacrificed their own because of the company of those that they were in. All of this influence of these other nations throughout the time of exile, verses 23 through 30. She was influenced by Egypt, the Philistines, Chaldea, Babylon. So much so that she was even offending the Philistines. Look there at verse 27. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion, delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. They were making these pagan nations around them look good due to their lewdness and their abominations. 
prostituting with the Babylonians in verse 29. Israel is even said to be that of a prostitute who pays her adulterers. Awful, disgusting acts. Verses 31 through 34. This describes an adulterous wife who has forgotten the grace that has been bestowed upon the king who has come to save her, the one who has made her, the one who has saved her. It's all because of the condition of the heart. There at verse 30, or the second really, the first part of verse 30, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord, because you have done all of these things. This is a heart issue. It is a heart problem. And God exposes Israel's nakedness through this. God is enraged, and he will bring destruction and shame upon her. And this all culminates leading up to verses 35 through 42, ending up in the destruction of Israel. And then God carries this this family motive, extending it to Judah, like that of a a mother and daughter relationship, Judah has gone the way of her pagan roots, and two with her sisters, Sodom and Samaria, both of which were judged for their sin was great. But even these two cannot compare to Judah, who was more corrupt, verses 44 through 59, that Israel had turned inward so much at the problem of this heart that, again, they are making these awful areas look like righteous saints. This is not only the picture, but the reality of the heart issue that was being described here. But notice here in verse 41, God shows his purposes in discipline, that there is purpose behind the discipline that God uses. So even in the midst of all of this, verse 41 and shall and they, her enemies, shall burn your houses and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore. Now again, this is strong, awful language. But we even see right here, in the midst of all of this judgment, there's discipline here with a purpose that God, even in her conduct, he would say, I will stop making you do this. That he has a purpose behind these things. These judgments were only going to go to the length of God's purpose in disciplining them. Just like we would discipline our children who might be out of the way, though imperfectly, God here is perfect, and thus his discipline is perfect, and always for the spiritual good of his children. So even here, God would commit to stopping this lewd behavior. But why and how is the question. So we just painted, in a very quick way, a heart issue, a heart problem, over a people who turned away from a God who took care of them in every possible way, but still existing with this problem. 59 verses, though, have led to something really astounding here in Ezekiel 16. There is a massive massive transition that I would encourage you to just spend the time reading certainly these accounts of how awful the nation was and by extension we in the same way that we are stand depraved against the holy God 
here comes this transition that we went from abhorred to preserved to married to disciplined. And now here comes the atonement. Here comes a better blood who is, and she is loved and forgiven. Verse 60. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. Family, this is probably one of those great words that you can read in all of Scripture. The word yet. After this tragic story of lost humanity depicted in this chapter, God brings forth something that seems rather impossible. It's not expected. It's not rational. It's not logical. There's no real argument here that would set up the fact, oh, of course God would do this. No, he brings forth his love in the midst of fallen humanity through a promise. God remembers his love for this utterly hopeless, helpless infant that was cast out. That bride that he adorned, though externally, Despite her unfaithfulness, he remains faithful. Our entire eternity rests upon this astonishing and inexplicable act of God's love that's captured in this little word, yet. Go back to verse 60. Yet I will remember your covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Now he promises to adorn her internally, So flip over. We're going to do old to new real quick here. Flip over to Jeremiah 31. We're just going two chapters back. And I recommend children for bookmarks because, as you can see, it's really easy for me to turn to Jeremiah 31 because my child has ripped it almost in two. He promises to adorn her internally. Jeremiah 31, we'll read at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws within them, I will write them on their hearts, write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all will know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. God was saying through Ezekiel that the basis of his grace and ultimately his love wasn't going to be found in the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. No one could ever keep that, save for one person. Even with their best intentions, it was simply meant to be a picture. Until the fullness of time had come, Jesus Christ at the cross of Calvary. Only he could fill the law's demands, and so he did. Thus, God generates and promises this eternal covenant that will carry with it an unending atonement. Fully paid on this cross. Now, I want you to go from Jeremiah to Hebrews 8. We just read this promise in Hebrews 8. I'm sorry, in Jeremiah 31. 
Now turn to Hebrews 8, verse 6. Hebrews chapter 8, starting at verse 6. You get your Bible workout for the day. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is more excellent than the old covenant he mediates for, since the old covenant, um, the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second, for he finds fault with them when he says, now we just read this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I will establish you a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with them, with their fathers, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds, I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not teach each one his neighbor, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sin no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. We have ultimately seen now, while Ezekiel, they didn't know at the time, We are on this side of the cross. Being on this side of the cross in the new covenant, we now know who has made this reconciliation. We have seen the fulfillment of this. And it's Jesus Christ on the cross. This is grace. God's wrath fully and finally satisfied so that grace and true forgiveness can be granted. So now that we, when we here live, as we read in the beginning of this chapter, It's no longer our blood that we hear that in. It is Christ's blood that we hear that. For God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5. See how we have gone from blood to blood, where our blood is stained, sin-marred, cannot stand in God's presence. God has taken it upon himself and ultimately upon his Son. Now we are covered in Christ's blood, covered by his righteousness and his perfection. So we asked a few rhetorical questions here at the beginning. And if you're dealing when, I should say if, when, you're dealing with trials and you you get these thoughts of abandonment or you're struggling with some sin and you're questioning this grace, maybe perhaps even questioning who what your faith is. Just remember there stands one on the throne right now, the throne of grace, who knows absolutely your plight, who has a purpose for it. Some circumstance that you've been placed in, you're awaiting, like Ezekiel wanting to be, thought he was going to be a priest or should have been, and then the exile happens, and then moral abandonment, all of these horrible things, but even God has purposes behind these things ultimately so that we see that he has provided one who has achieved this on our behalf. So where we would perhaps run from God in guilt, 
He runs to us in grace through Christ. He now looks at us with eyes of, of pity and of compassion and of love. All through Christ. Thomas Goodwin has said that Christ's heart in heaven for his bride, the church, is like that of a parent with their child with some loathsome disease. So your struggles and your sin move Christ to pity more than they do anger. To see that your your sin is destroyed and that your joy may be made full. Just like that of a disease being stripped away from a child or a spouse to the delight of the family, this is Christ's love towards us. And we see that through this, what God would do through his son. Goodwin here in his quote, quote, Now of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you yourselves look at it as such, Christ will look upon it, such only also in you. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall all fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction. But his bowels, his heart, shall be more drawn out to you. And this as much, when you lie under sin as much as any other affliction, therefore fear not what shall separate us from Christ's love. Romans 8.35 Abhorred, preserved, married, judged, atoned is a wonderful picture of what God ultimately did in Christ. Thanks be to God that He did not leave us in sin, but he sent forth his son to not only set us free to live, but then to live for him. And so the motivation here to walk away from sin, the motivation to stand firm in temptation, the motivation to see these trials comes by one who knows, who is standing, who has atoned for us on our behalf. It is a wonderful picture. And again, I would recommend spending quite a bit of time here. It's a long chapter. There are many pictures to be drawn out from this. But the main one is the fact that only through Christ, this heart issue has been completely satisfied through God's Son. So I wanted to end with readings, with a reading from words from just a tremendous hymn by George Robertson. It's on the back side of your notes there. I, was, I had actually multiple, multiple quotes and multiple hymns, and I was pulling them in and out, and I came across this one, and I actually had not read this before. And I thought it so sweetly captured all of this. So the hymn is called, I Am His and He Is Mine. Loved with everlasting love, led by grace that love to know, Spirit sent from Christ above, thou hast taught me it is so. Oh, this full and precious peace from his presence all divine, in a love which cannot cease. I am his and he is mine. Heaven above is deeper blue, earth around is sweeter green. That which glows in every hue Christless eyes have never seen. Birds with gladder songs overflow, flowers with richer beauty shine. Since I know, as now I know, I am his and he is mine. Taste the goodness of the Lord. Welcome home to his embrace. All his love as blood outpoured seals the pardon of his grace. Can I doubt his love for me when I trace love's design? 
by the cross of Calvary. I am his and he is mine. His forever, only his. Who the Lord and me shall part. Uh, with, a, with what a rest of bliss Christ can fill the loving heart. Heaven and earth may fade and flee. Firstborn light in gloom decline. But while God and I shall be, I am his and he is mine. Christ has done it for us. It is all about Christ here. This chapter screams of a promise that we now know made complete in his son. So spend some time there. Spend some time knowing that we have been purchased by his blood. Suppose there is, while I'm not good at this, I suppose there is a moment for a question or two, but I'll, I'll pray here in short. Well, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ezekiel in this prophetic language, as we heard last week, when we read in these, these prophetic languages and in these, these Old Testament passages that someone's coming and you have provided that someone, we now know who that is. It is Jesus Christ. I pray that we would spend time in your word, that we would see where we could not, you have accomplished it for us that you would motivate our lives by seeing the great sacrifice that Christ paid for us. Father, may we love him evermore, day by day, in the small ways, over the course of time that you give to us, to see that our trials, even our sin is being used, that we might run to Christ because he came to us. Father, we thank you for this forgiveness. We pray that we would continue to be taught by it, that we be moved by it, even in the next service now, prepare our hearts, that we might sing your praises, that we, are know, that we would know that I am his and you are mine. Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.